You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. The sermon this evening is going to be from Revelation 19, so please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 19. That's on page 1247 in the Bibles available here. While you're turning, I have to make a clarification. I said this morning that this is a Harris tweet, and then people were thinking, oh, I wish I could afford that. My lovely wife got this in a charity shop, okay? Um, I don't wear things that don't come from a charity shop. Also, this, this sermon is under duress. Sinclair was not supposed to be here. That's why I'm on. He was supposed to be in America. And so if you've come to listen to him tonight, I apologize. You have to put up with an American. So that said... Let's turn now to Revelation chapter 19, and I'm going to read uh, the first nine verses of this chapter. Hear now God's eternal, holy, and inerrant word. After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our God, or for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So ends reading of God's word. <clears throat> have to note too before we begin the, the providence of God. Reading from Exodus tonight, did you notice what the priest's garments were made of? Remember, they were made of fine linen. It comes up in this passage. Um, <clears throat> I want to ask you, how many of you like to eat? You can see by me, I really don't care for that at all. It's a pastime. I certainly do, as you know. And we're going to talk about a great feast this evening. And it centers on a meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a meal which Christians will enjoy throughout eternity. It's a meal that focuses our attention on both heaven and the Lord's Supper. To be sure, it doesn't answer all of the questions about heaven or the Lord's Supper that might be surging through your minds. But John does paint for us a picture here of heaven, and it's this meal that has a relationship to the Lord's Supper. 
So before we take a look at this passage, let me ask you two questions. First of all, what is your theology of heaven? And secondly, how do you understand the Lord's Supper? First, what's heaven going to be like? What's your vision of heaven? What role does it play also in the way you live day by day? Or is it just something that you should believe in as a Christian? You might be saying, well, who cares? I'm doing quite well right now. I'm enjoying life. Don't bother me with those kind of thoughts, okay? I don't need to think about it. Or you might say, who cares if you knew all I'm going through right now? I don't have time to be thinking about those kind of things. If you don't understand what I'm going through, you wouldn't understand why I can't be bothered to think about heaven. I'm just trying to get through life day by day, the best I can. For many Christians, heaven is a kind of escapism. It's a coping mechanism that enables us to face the harsh realities of life, here and now. Because somehow or other, it's all going to be good when we get to heaven. Now, Scripture does give us hope when it comes to heaven. Hope that this reality, this fallen reality, is not all that there is. Hope that this fallen world will be renewed and restored to the way God intended it. Hope that this fallen world is never the way that God intended things to be. We live in a broken world, a world of deception, a world of disappointment, of frustration, of violence, of greed, of pain, of tears and sin. And those glimpses of heaven which we find in Scripture give us hope that our Creator has something better in mind than this reality in which we find ourselves. Now, the whole of Scripture is one long story painting the picture of God's plan of redemption and restoration of His fallen creation. That plan of redemption involves, first of all, restoration which he, in which he will make all things new and right again. He will mend the brokenness when he reverses all of the effects of the curse, removing sin and all of its effects from the equation of our daily lives. But it also involves restoring us to intimate fellowship with him, a fellowship which was lost When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and it was symbolized by God casting them out of the garden, we couldn't fellowship anymore with God. And the restoration that God is bringing about in this plan of salvation is not just forgiveness of sins. It's that, in order that, then, we can come into his presence and fellowship with him. It's all about restoring that union and communion with our creator. And the second question I want to ask you about is what does this passage in Revelation have to do with the Lord's Supper? We will be celebrating the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day morning in our worship service. Why do we do that? What's the point? What difference does it make for the way we live here and now? Or is it just one more traditional Christian tick box that we have to do? Occasionally. How should we react and how should we think about the Lord's Supper? I think this passage tells us some things about that. We often tend to view the Lord's Supper in purely personal, individualistic terms. 
However, our understanding of the Lord's Supper must fit into the grand scope of God's plan of redemption and restoration of his fallen creation. It's part and parcel of his plan of redemption. It must be seen as a vital element and a picture of what God has done, is doing, and will do to restore all things. The Lord's Supper is a look back to what Christ has accomplished, but it's also a look forward to what he will yet do, the greater reality yet to come, as we'll hopefully see with what John has to say about the marriage supper. However, and those of you who know me can understand this, because John's book is at the end of the scriptures, he uses a lot of images and concepts that come from all of Scripture, particularly a lot of things out of the Old Testament. Now, those of you who are in the pastoral groups, you know, in the book of Hebrews, there's lots and lots and lots and lots out of the Old Testament in that book. The book of Revelation is no different. If you don't understand the Old Testament, you're really not going to understand what John's talking about. And so we have to go back and look at some of the things in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament as well, if we're going to understand what John is saying about this marriage supper of the Lamb. So I want us to look briefly at two precursors to the marriage supper of the Lamb so that we can understand it a wee bit better. The first is Passover. We'll turn to Exodus chapter 12 and look at that. And then also the Lord's Supper itself in Matthew 26. First of all, Passover. I'm sure you're familiar with the context of Passover in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 12. The Israelites had been in Egypt for well over 400 years. They'd become enslaved and now were being oppressed by their taskmasters. God sends Moses and Aaron to confront Pharaoh to demand that he let his people go. Generally, we think of the Exodus as just being freed from physical slavery and oppression. It was that. And what a delight that would have been for the children of Israel. But the real point, and I'll challenge you to go back in Exodus and see over and over again. Moses says, let my people go so that they can serve me. They're to go into the wilderness to serve God, to worship God. He wanted to redeem his people so that they could worship him, so that they could be with him. That was the whole point of the Exodus. But how's that going to happen? Well, as you look at the account there in Exodus 12 of Passover, there's six different things that we need to see about that that will come to bear on our understanding of the Lord's Supper and then the marriage supper of the Lamb. First of all, there was a sacrifice which involved death and substitution. The Israelites didn't just go, okay, let's leave, we're out of here. And the Egyptians go, that's good, go ahead. No, 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 that's not how it took place. They had to sacrifice a lamb, a blameless lamb. There had to be a substitute made. Death had to take place. It says loud and clear, there's sin, and death has to take place. Blood has to be shed. A sacrifice has to be made. The second thing is this idea of the blood, the covering of this substitute lamb. It's not just that they killed a lamb, and that was it. What did they have to do with the blood of that lamb? They had to smear it on their house, on the doorposts and lintels. Why? What was the purpose of that? To mark them out as somehow better than the Egyptians? No, we know that. It was done in haste. It was done in the evening. And that night at midnight, God sent the death angel 
Because he had said the firstborn in all of Egypt, including the people of God, would die unless they had blood on the doorposts and lintels. That was a symbolic way of covering the whole house with blood. They couldn't get blood and dump it over their whole house. This was a symbolic way of saying the house is covered. The sacrifice has been made. A substitute has died so that the firstborn in this house doesn't have to die. And so there's the idea of sacrifice. There's the idea of blood and substitution. But it wasn't just that. What did they do? What is Passover at its very core? It's a meal. They were to eat this lamb. They were to eat it in haste with unleavened bread and bitter herbs with everything ready to go. Okay, that was a symbol of God saying, you're getting out of here. I'm redeeming you. But there was a meal. Now, most of you probably don't have a a whole lot of understanding of all of the Old Testament sacrifices. But there's a whole list of them. Many of them do not involve a meal. The sacrifice was consumed totally on the altar. Especially atonement. It was consumed up to the Lord. It belonged to him. But there were other sacrifices, peace sacrifices, in which part of the animal sacrificed and burnt up to the Lord. But then part of it was eaten as a fellowship meal, symbolizing the restoration of peace with God. That people could eat together in his presence. Passover, because it's a meal, was a peace offering. This meal symbolized restoration of peace with God. That's what this meal was all about. That God would sustain his people and then redeem them so that they could go free. Also, with the whole idea of Passover, is the idea of judgment and deliverance. God comes and he's going to judge Egypt primarily, although all of Israel was included in this. If an Israelite didn't put blood on the doorposts and lintels, their firstborn would die. And so there's this very clear understanding of judgment on on all that were in Egypt. God was judging Egypt, particularly for all of its rebellion and sin and idolatry. And it shows us how seriously God takes sin. This same judgment, though, was on the Israelites as well. They weren't singled out like some of the other plagues. Their region wasn't exempted. Their firstborn was to die as well if they didn't have the blood. Israel was to remember their firstborn belonged to God and they needed to be redeemed. But can you imagine the sound that night? Shortly after midnight, the Egyptians begin waking up, find their firstborn children and livestock dead. Shock, horror, crushing agony. You can hear the wailing throughout the land. In the middle of the night, mothers and fathers cradling their dead firstborn children. Yet in the houses of the people of God, there is unbounded joy. The death angel has passed over. They're safe. Why? Because they've deserved it? They've earned it? No, but because there was a sacrifice made. There was bloodshed. A substitute had taken the place of the firstborn. That moves us on to the next idea of Passover that we need to understand if we're to understand Lord's Supper and the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
and that is redemption. The term redeem or redemption is not used in the context of Exodus chapter 12. But in other places in the book of Exodus, God does say that he's going to redeem his children out of Egypt with an outstretched arm. And he, after the fact, after the 40 years of wilderness wandering, just before they're going to enter the promised land, Moses reminds them again, God has redeemed you out of Egypt by his strong arm. So this act of shedding blood, of sacrifice, and of Exodus fleeing out of Egypt was an act of God's redeeming grace. The deliverance that night was an act of God's sovereign and redeeming grace. God didn't deliver his people merely so that they could have a life of ease, took them out into the wilderness. (laughs) And then even once they got into Palestine, they had to drive out the inhabitants. That wasn't the point. The point was so that he could dwell amongst his people. He couldn't do that if they remained in Egypt with all of the gods of Egypt. He had to get them out, apart to himself, so that he could dwell in the midst You just go through the book of Exodus and see what the whole design of the camp and everything else. The point is God is in the middle of his people. He's dwelling with his people. He's restoring what was lost in the fall. This interaction between God's people and God himself. But then lastly, we need to see about the Passover that it wasn't simply a one-off historical event. Nor was it purely some religious event in the sense of a formal ritual, simply to be observed in a mechanical manner. It was to be celebrated, is the language of Exodus. And the word that was, is used here twice means to keep a feast with unbounded joy. You would think, you know, the, the fear of the people of God, the death angel and all the rest, but the idea of Passover is unbounded joy. Why? Because God's redeeming them. God's pulling them to himself. He's drawing them to himself. Saving them, we would say. And Passover was also to be a remembrance. It was to cause the people to remember what God had done for them. Delivering them. The Israelites couldn't redeem themselves out of Egypt. Had they been able to do so, they would have done so long ago. God had to do that. He had to intervene. It's all of his grace. So when they observe Passover, they're recalling what God had done. That should just bring joy to their mouths. The language used in Exodus chapter 12 uh, indicates that the children of Israel are to observe Passover when they finally enter into the promised land. This was something that was to go on. It was to be a permanent ordinance amongst the people of God. Why? They're redeemed now. They're out of Egypt. What's the point of doing that over and over and over again? Sure, it's to look back that God had gotten them out of Egypt. But the point of continuing to do it is there's more yet to come. There's a bigger deliverance yet to come. They weren't delivered from their sins. They were delivered from Egypt. But one was coming. The Lamb of God was coming. Who would sacrifice himself, shed his blood to redeem them. And draw them to himself. So this idea of permanence of the sacrifice that went on in Passover points to the fact that Christ is coming. There's a new day coming. Remember what God's done in the past, yes, but look forward to what's happening in the future. 
Just a kind of an aside, you have to realize that when we look at the Lord's Supper, it's looking back to what Christ has done, but it's also looking forward. And I'll say more about that in a bit. But Passover is a meal of intense joy and celebration, calling to mind the wonder of God's covenant faithfulness and his grace. And it is this character of Passover which serves as the foundation of the Lord's Supper and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now please turn over in the New Testament to Matthew chapter 26. We can't go into detail about this, but it's the institution of the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, verse 17, and then verses 26 through 29. From Matthew 26, 17, we learn that the Lord's Supper was instituted in conjunction with the celebration of the Passover. Jesus is linking consciously the two meals together while he's differentiating the two. The Lord's Supper was not a segment or an extension of Passover. Rather, Christ is instituting a new sacrament, a new sign. In the Old Covenant, Passover was the sign of God's redeeming grace. I mean, that stood out in the minds of the Israelites. That's how they knew God was a God of grace. And in the New Covenant, it's the Lord's Supper. Because that points us to the sacrifice Christ made on the cross. That is where we see God's grace displayed in its full glory. When you look at the elements, to me what's remarkable about the account of the institution of the Lord's Supper is how simple it is. It just involves two elements, bread and wine. And we have to notice the perhaps obvious fact, there's no blood. Why is that? What was going to happen on the day following the evening when Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. What was he going to do? Where was he headed? He was going to the cross. He was the Lamb of God. Come in the flesh. He was going to offer himself up to redeem his people. He was the Passover Lamb. All those other Passover Lambs all look forward to him. Now he's there. So the Lord's Supper isn't a bloody sacrifice. Thanks be to God. Because Jesus poured out his blood once and for all. He paid the penalty for our sin. He redeemed us from our sin. Why? So that he could draw us to himself. So that we could worship him. So that we could be with him and he with us. Jesus simply takes the bread. Gives thanks. Breaks it and says take eat. This is my body. His body will replace the Passover lamb. Then he takes a cup, gives thanks again, and says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's his blood which will bring about the redemption of his people, not that of an animal. Both of these elements point to what Jesus is going to do. Not what his followers are going to do, but what he is going to do. The Lord's Supper, like Passover, is all of grace. It's not what we do any more than what the Israelites did to redeem themselves out of Egypt. The Lord's Supper says, look at what Christ has done and marvel at what he has done by his grace. But there's this twofold focus of the Lord's Supper. We need to see that there's two aspects to it. First of all, it does indeed look back to what Christ has done. 
We can't partake of the Lord's Supper properly if we don't look back to that horrible event and yet joyous event. Jesus had to go to the cross because of my sin. It should break us in every fiber of our being that it was our sin that drove the nails into his hands. We have to look back. But it's not just some morbid thing. Because as we look back, we know it was finished. It's all done. There's nothing more we need to add. Jesus has paid the price fully. We can't do anything more than what Christ has already done. But it's not just a look back. The Lord's Supper is also a look forward. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Just like Passover had that forward look, so too the Lord's Supper has that forward look. It's not just looking back to the finished work of Christ. It is that. It must be that. But it's far more than that. It's looking to yet something greater that's still to come. It points us forward to Christ's return. To the fact that Christ is going to return and usher in a new reality. It should cause us to long for the day when we will be with him forever. In eternal joy. So just as Passover had been an ongoing celebration. Recalling what God had done in the past. But looking forward to a new reality. Which was yet to come. So too the Lord's Supper is an ongoing celebration of joy. Because of what God has done in Christ and also what he will do that's yet to come. And it's that reality which is described for us in the three cascading images that John paints in, in Revelation 19. The book of Revelation was written to Christians who were suffering a crushing persecution. They were being hunted down and killed. And it was given to them to give them hope. That in the midst of what looked like it was all lost, Christ was still on the throne. He was directing history to his desired end. And they would come to that conclusion which he had set for it. That's the purpose of the book of Revelation. But it's also apocalyptic literature and very impressionistic. Apocalyptic literature uh, views the events of the last days, the end of the world, prophetically. And it does that by using pictures and images and metaphors. It's not meant to be interpreted literally. John is giving us pictures of a reality that is yet to come. It's kind of like the difference between looking at the painting of one of the Dutch realists. Like Van der Velde or Vermeer or Van der Helst. And then a painting of one of the Impressionists or Post-Impressionists. Like Cezanne, or Monet, or Van Gogh. So as we look at Revelation, we have to see pictures and images. And let those pictures do their job, not looking into all of the tale. And John has here a a combination of cascading images. He paints three impressionist scenes, which build from one to the next. In a cascade effect, with the third scene being the climax. And the image of the marriage supper of the Lamb itself is a combination of two images. The image of a feast, which I can't wait for. (laughs) 
just kind of as an aside, it's a feast where there will be no cholesterol and no calories. So it's going to be a good feast. Okay? But when you think about a feast, there's friends there. There's conversation, food, drink, happiness. That's the picture John wants us to get. But it's not just any old feast. It's a marriage feast with all that that symbolizes. Intimacy, love, anticipation. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb that he's painting us a picture of here. So scene one in verses one to three of Revelation 19. It's the victory celebration. And you have to, we can't have time to go over the whole book of Revelation to see all that's going on and the battles that have been happening. And the victory has finally come. In verse 1, after this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. It's a sound like a roar of a great multitude. This is a multitude of crowds, literally, in Greek. So this is not just a few people here. And it's in heaven. This is not a picture of our fallen reality. This is a picture of the heavenly, restored reality. The text says in NIV that they are shouting. Literally, unfortunately, it just says they are speaking. So it's not quite as dramatic. And the content of this worship, they speak hallelujah. What does that word mean? Hopefully you know it means praise the Lord. And it's using God's covenant name, Yahweh. The I am that I am. The one who never changes. Who remains faithful to his covenant throughout all eternity. It's praising that God. Because now that has all come true. All that he has said. It's come to pass. So that's the only thing that you can say. It's hallelujah. And then it goes on. It says salvation and glory and power belong to our God. All of these things belong to and are from God alone. And it evokes worship from the hosts in heaven. The worship is directed to the Lord alone. It is for him alone. And salvation and glory and power belong to him. Do you catch the focus of this worship? It's not about those that are worshiping. It's about the one who's on the throne. And everything belongs to and is directed to him. And then what are the grounds of this worship? In verse 2, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. We don't have time to go back again through all of Revelation and see who this woman was. Suffice it to say, she's a symbol of all the enemies of God and God's people. And she has seduced and persecuted God's people throughout the ages. Drawing them away from their love for him. But now she's done. She's been vanquished. God has taken vengeance on her for what she's done to his servants. Can you see the joy that would be there? Finally, our enemy is gone. We don't have that threat anymore. Her smoke goes up forever. She was condemned. By God's judgments, which are true and just. John quotes from Psalm 19 there. Then he quotes from Deuteronomy 32 and 2 Kings when he says that he's going to avenge the blood of his servants. 
God is fulfilling his word literally here. And that provokes worship. In verse 3, there's subsequent worship. NIV says, and again they shouted, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Literally, it says, a second time. It's like, just so consumed with this thought, our enemy's gone. They shout, hallelujah. And then as they see the smoke going up, it just produces worship all over again. And they shout, hallelujah, her smoke goes up forever. Those in heaven know that the great prostitute has been vanquished. And that led to the initial hallelujah. But as they see the smoke, they're overwhelmed by the truth and the reality of that. So they praise the Lord for what he alone has done. Praising him that it's all over. That their enemies are finally done. Then we move to scene two in verses four to six. First of all, John describes the initial worshipers. That makes me proud. There are 24 elders, and the word that's used there is presbyter. So we know that there are Presbyterians in heaven. That's a good thing. (laughs) And there's 24 of them, probably to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the New Testament, that it's a united people of God. These 24 presbyters, however, don't act very Presbyterian. Because almost every time we see them mentioned in the book of Revelation, they're falling down on their face in worship. Look at Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Or Revelation 11, verse 15 to 17. Over and over again, almost every time that John mentions these 24 elders, they see something that God has done and boom, they're on their face worshiping. And you have to get the picture of Muslims at worship, with their face in the dust. That's the biblical posture of worship. Homage before the living God. Reverence for who he is. I want to get myself as low as possible so that he is exalted. That's what the 24 elders are doing. That's what elders do. They're bowing before the one who is seated on the throne. And they cry out, Amen. It's from a Hebrew word that means truth. The sense of faithful, covenant-keeping. God has kept his word, and they say amen. Hallelujah, again, the third time we see this word. That's what the elders offer up in praise. And both the 24 elders and these four living creatures together comprise a kind of unique worship team, leading the hosts of heaven in eternal worship. These four living creatures remind us of the four seraphim that surrounded the throne in Isaiah 6. But they're different because they're described earlier in the book of Revelation and they're different creatures. And it seems like all they do is worship the one on the throne. All they can say is holy, holy, holy. Every time they look, there's a fresh vision of who he is and his holiness. And they're overwhelmed. And it causes them to worship. But it's not just these 24 elders and the four living creatures. Because there's additional worshipers. In verse 5. Then a voice comes from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants. You who fear him, both great and small. 
There's this authoritative pronouncement from the throne. To praise God, it's an imperative. It's a different word. It means to express approval or honor. And it's used only of the praise of God. And this is what worship is all about. Honoring God for who he is. It's not about me, how I feel, what I'd like to do. It's about who God is and expressing who he is and what he's done in recognition of who he is. And it's all of his servants. It's the word for slave. It's the word that's used in the New Testament to describe believers. So all believers here, great and small, not just the 24 elders, not just the four living creatures, all God's people are to praise him. That's the picture John's painting here. The worship just is expanding and expanding, both great and small. Then verse 6, this expanded worship. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, and like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. It's a great multitude. It takes us back to verse 1 all over again. And it's like the sound of roaring water. I went to university near Niagara Falls in the U.S. They are not by any stretch the biggest waterfalls in the world as far as height. They're only 51 meters. But they are the largest waterfalls as far as volume of water going over them. And when you're coming close to those falls, you can hear the roar of those falls. When you are right there, you can't hear somebody speaking. It's such a roar. That's the image John is giving us here. Coupled with that is peals of thunder. Now here in Scotland you don't have much thunder. But I know you know what that sounds like. And it's deafening. This is not a nice quiet Presbyterian worship service here. This is all stops pulled out. Why? Because it's done. Restoration has come. And God's people shout out hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And there's this massive, loud peelings of thunder and roaring. And what they say is that God reigns. God rules. God is sovereign. That's what worship says. He alone reigns. The scene ties in with the first. And that scene, the, the prostitute, the great prostitute was vanquished. God has shown himself to reign. In all things. And finally we come to scene three. The great feast. The climax of these three pictures of heavenly reality. It's not just a matter that our enemies have been defeated. And that we're privileged to enter into God's presence and worship him without sin. Together with all of the hosts of heaven. We're invited to a great wedding feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 7 tells us the atmosphere at this feast. It says, let us rejoice and be glad. I want you to remember that. When you're in heaven, it's not like, oh, woe is me. It's not that at all. It's unbounded joy. Why? Because it's completed. All that God has planned has come to fruition. And there's elation at that fact. People are called on to be glad and to rejoice and to give him glory. Again, the focus is on God and what he has done and what he deserves. 
And so far, this is just a continuation of the worship that we've already seen in the first two scenes. But in verses 7 and 8, we're given the real reason for this continued worship, the cause of all of this joy. Verse 7, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. The reason for all of that joy is there's a wedding going to take place. It's the wedding of the Lamb. Say more about the Lamb, but we know that it's Christ. The wedding has come. It's finally here. At long last, this wedding is to take place. And with that note, all of heaven erupts in joy. You look at the wedding party, verses 7 and 8. First of all, the groom. There's not much explicitly said, but it's the wedding of the Lamb. And if you know anything about the book of Revelation, John mentions the Lamb over and over and over again. And most often he says it's the lamb that was slain. It's not just any lamb. It's the lamb who was slain. It's a picture of Christ crucified. He's the one that's the center of all that's going on. The focus of all of this worship. One of my favorite passages in Revelation 5. It's a picture of the lamb in the middle of the throne. Receiving worship from not only the 24 elders, the living creatures, and all of the redeemed people, but all of creation is just erupting in praise of the Lamb. That's who the groom is. But when did the Lamb become slain? It was a long time ago from the perspective of Revelation 19. Christ came to earth, died on the cross. He was slain. He purchased his people at that point. But it's not until now that the wedding can finally take place. This great celebration of joy has now finally come. Christ said on the cross, it's finished, and it was. But now finally the wedding can take place. And who's the bride? First of all, you have to see that she stands in stark contrast to the great prostitute. This bride has made herself ready. Not in the sense of earning or meriting anything to her own actions. Rather, this is expression that the bride has just prepared herself for the wedding. In fact, she's given garments of fine linen that are bright and clean to wear. And so she's just simply to put on those garments that she's been given. The fine linen linen garments which he has been given stand for the righteous acts of God's holy people. She's been clothed so that she can be part of this wedding ceremony. She's clothed with a righteousness that's not her own, but which is accredited to her so that she can be properly clothed for the wedding. It's a beautiful picture of salvation by grace alone. And Christian, that's us. We're the bride. The lamb had to purchase us with his blood. And he had to clothe us with his righteousness, his perfect righteousness. He does it all. We have done nothing with which to purchase our own redemption. Nor do we have the proper garments, perfect righteousness, to appear on that wedding. We find a similar vision in chapter 21 of Revelation of the Lamb and the bride coming down like a heavenly Jerusalem. 
And God takes care of his people. In that passage in Revelation 21, we see the new Jerusalem coming down as a bride, full, beautifully dressed. And then we're told in explicitly covenantal language that God's dwelling place is amongst his people. It's a restoration of the scenes of the garden where God comes and dwells amongst his people. And see what he does when he's with his people from Revelation 21. He wipes away every tear. He eliminates death and mourning and crying and pain. He will do away with this entire old fallen order and make everything new. It's a picture of full restoration. That's what the marriage supper of the Lamb is all about. Full restoration, reunification with our God. Then verse 9, in closing. The angel said to me, write, this is, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words of God. This has got to be written down. It's too good to be true. We have to know this, that this day is coming. It's true. God is going to bring this to pass. Those who are invited, who are called by name, literally, to this wedding supper, are blessed. The word that's used there is a word that's used often in the Sermon on the Mount. And as Sinclair has been telling us, that's about life in the kingdom. Or if we use the language of Revelation, it's life as the bride of Christ. We're blessed to be in his presence, to be his bride. Revelation 19, we're not given any details about the supper. Not about what we're to eat there, where we're going to sit. You know, that's the big thing. Who am I going to sit next to at the wedding? Is it going to be somebody I like or no? We're not, we're not told those details. It's not important. What's important is that the bride sits by the lamb. We're in his presence. It doesn't matter who else is there. Because we're his bride sitting in his presence. It's going to be a time of great joy, of intimate fellowship. First and foremost, with the Lamb himself. I want you to imagine sitting at table with Christ. Having him dry your tears. Embrace you in his perfect love. No more fear of failure. No fear of rejection. No fear of not being good enough. No more broken promises. No more pain. No more crying. Eternally with the Lamb. That's what it was all about throughout the whole of Scripture. And it's come. So what? What do we do with this? I want you to long for the day when it's going to be announced that the marriage supper has finally really come. And long for that with every fiber of your being. But also every time you partake of the Lord's Supper... Remember not only what Christ has done in the past, but remember there's a marriage supper coming that will far exceed any of our expectations. Remember what he is going to do. Remember that we're going to fellowship with him forever and ever. And let the joy of that coming reality seep down into your sin-weary bones and refresh your faith. Live your life day by day in joyous expectation 
of that day when you'll be face to face with the Lamb who was slain on your behalf. Live your life in anticipation of being with your Redeemer throughout all eternity with all the effects of sin removed. Live your life in hope that there is more to life than this fallen world. When Christ said on the cross, it's finished. Indeed it was. Everything necessary for our redemption had been accomplished at that point. And yet there's a day still to come. A day when all of the effects of the curse will finally be removed. All of his and our enemies will finally be defeated. A day when we can know unbounded joy. The joy of being in God's presence without sin. It isn't so much that we're going to escape this fallen world with its pain and its frustration, its death, its tears, its greed, its violence, its weariness. Rather, it's that we're going to a wedding feast, a wedding of the Lamb that will last for all eternity. Oh, what a feast that will be. May it come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these pictures of a reality that goes beyond what we can think of being in your presence, enjoying you forever and ever and ever, knowing your love without our sin. Oh, dear Lord, we long for that day. We thank you that you have accomplished all things necessary for our salvation. And may we rejoice in that day by day. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.